0: Hello, and welcome to Living Out Loud, the podcast where I pursue the connection between spiritual inquiry and social good. Today I'm speaking with Francis Spufford. Francis is a former Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year, and has authored five highly praised books of non-fiction. His first book, I May Be Some Time, Ice and the English Imagination, was awarded the Writers Guild Award for Best Non-Fiction Book in 1996 and a Somerset Maugham Award. His second book, The Child That Books Built, gave Neil Gaiman the peculiar feeling that there was now a book I didn't need to write. In 2007, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and his first novel, Golden Hill, was published in 2016, and won the Costa First Novel Award. He's also a Senior Lecturer in Creative Writing at Goldsmiths University, and for this podcast, I visited his office to speak about his deeply funny and profound 2012 book, Unapologetic, why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. So, I begin each interview by asking if you have a spiritual sensibility.
1: I don't know what a spiritual sensibility is, so it's very hard to say if I've got one. I don't like the idea that the the world is neatly segmented into three parts marked mind body and spirit because they strongly that would strongly suggest that whatever is in the spiritual sensibility section must have nothing to do with the other bit whereas it seems to me that if there is such a thing as a spiritual sensibility it probably is an angle of vision rather than an area of subject matter using that as the definition well sometimes i do and sometimes i don't and by a vision rather than a thing what would that touch upon it would be a vision of human needs that was on a larger scale than just the well-known pyramid of stuff people go for, starting with food and shelter down at the bottom and ended up with, with meaning and self-esteem up at the top. It would, and I speak, I speak as a Christian, it would mean for me that we were, we were being nourished by more than literal food. It would mean that there is an appetite, by which I don't mean a kind of recreational, ooh, I just fancy a snack of that, I mean an actual functional and necessary hunger for a kind of sustenance which was not literal bodily sustenance that we we wither on the vine. More metaphors.
0: So then, let's speak about your book, um, Why Despite Everything, Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense. I I was wondering if you could speak about how far your faith, sacrifices the rational sense.
1: So putting the emphasis on emotional sense, do these things need to be separated? How do they play out? I stressed emotional not because I wanted to exclude rational, but because I wanted to to shift an emphasis back when I thought it had been skewed towards, not just plumb, but towards a, a rather narrow understanding of what rational was. I think it's important to remember that that traditionally speaking, reason has featured hugely in arguments for faith. That people have looked at the the human capacity to do logic and to fit together those beautiful elaborate structures of inference and, and deduction, and said that it can't be it can't be an accident that that corresponds to the the orderliness of the universe. That actually. Us being rational animals is an argument for us being created animals, which I don't buy particularly. It seems to me that there's a perfectly good evolutionary account you can give of why human beings can do mathematical logic. But I mention this because I don't like the caricature that says that, that reason belongs to science and, and, and what belongs to faith is what's left over from reason, which is usually described as, as irrationality. Inherently, I don't think faith is, is, is anti-rational at all. It's, it's to do with attention to what cannot be proved using the tools of logic. It's not opposition to what to what can be proved or a, a wishful desire to overlook what can be proved. It is to do with the exploration of those large and, you know, not not very exotic, often quite domestic and and familiar areas of existence which science won't work as the guidebook to all the issues to do with meaning and purpose and where our ethics come from and what on earth to make of things being in existence at all it isn't it isn't empirical this stuff and I called the book that because I wanted a kind of shorthand reminder for the reader that there were other things to say that weren't to do with abstract propositions that weren't to do with the limits of of what we could learn from neuroscience or evolutionary biology or particle physics. And again, that's not a very contentious thing to do, really, because uh, actually most of us live most of the time in those rich, fertile, necessary areas beyond abstract logic and, and what can be strictly scientifically deduced so emotional in the book title is shorthand for that whole huge familiar swathe on the map and also because the book was an exercise in persuasion not persuading people to be religious but persuading people i hoped to recognize that religion wasn't weird and alien but addressed a set of a set of of recognizable human needs i also wanted people to go emotional Ah, okay, so, so this actually has to do with the autobiographical material of my life, that it's, it's got to do with loving and hating and fearing and, and hoping and dreading and procrastinating and wasting time and getting addicted to stuff and falling in love and all of those things. I wanted emotional to go, hmm, this is, this is actually about intimate stuff.
0: How far do you think that our culture over relies on reason to explain a sense of reality in its broadest sense and our individual
1: lives? I think our culture is understandably proud of, of what instrumental, operational, practical reason has been able to do for us over the last two or three centuries. The, the terms on which we live on the planet are transformed Thanks to it. And I I don't want to do without good anesthetic surgery and dentistry that doesn't hurt, and antibiotics, and all of the other, all the other fruits of of science. But not just the practical ones. I, I wouldn't want to do without the the beautiful edifices of pure knowledge that have been have been created by it. But it is possible to be both proud of a real achievement and simultaneously to mythologize it into something which seems to become the be-all and end-all the source of all meaning and i i think our culture has been a bit inclined as its religious sense has faded away to turn with the the same hunger as ever and ask sociobiology or evolutionary psychology or any of those things to go go on please give us the the guide to to what we are and important step what we ought to be and i think that's much more questionable that actually a a religion which confesses that it's a religion is in some ways more honest and more suited to providing answers in human terms I mean, you can extract an ethic out of science, but it's chiefly to do with how to do science, which is a very good thing to have. I come from a scientist on my mother's side of my family tree, and one of my mother's earliest memories, back in the middle, late 1930s, was her mother, the chemist, saying, "Um, it goes like this, dear, you have an idea, and then you test it against the facts, and if it doesn't go right, then you throw away the idea never throw away the facts and there is an ethic to that there is an ethic to do with honesty which is immensely valuable but it doesn't tell you it doesn't tell you how to be good in other ways that aren't to do with respecting the data and it doesn't tell you what to do if you find that you've turned out not to be very good. In some ways I both in terms of my own life history and as a matter of temperament I reach for religion because it provides more persuasive descriptions of what happens when when we aren't good. It is immunized, vaccinated against the temptation to give over optimistic accounts of what human beings are like. It doesn't promise that everything is hunky-dory or that meaning well guarantees happy results. It doesn't say that if you just do as you would be done by, um, life will all work out fine. You could say, also in shorthand, that it, that it is actually better at paying attention to the, the tragic dimensions of, of human existence, but above all, it, it seems to me to offer better accounts of the actual observable messiness of lives.
0: And if we think about what God might be in anthropological terms, you speak about it as... Where we put in concentrated form our sense of what our own being, our own aliveness is. How much do you think that the conversation around God is about something beyond ourselves? And how much is it in contact with what it means to be human and living and uh, the inner life
1: and the emotions which come with that? Inevitably both. And with with a boundary between those two things, which is going to be very, very hard to pick out reliably. But I would say, as a believer, that it's very important that it isn't only a projection of our own concerns, that it it isn't just a a way of of acting out, dramatising symbolically what what really matters to us. That's always some of what's going on, clearly. But, But for me, what makes it worthwhile believing is the sense that that something else is leaning in to meet that enterprise, that there is, there is more than just the, the, the recycling in a state of anxious goodwill of the meanings we give to things, that there are you know, intermittently but preciously glimpses of what human life looks like from elsewhere with weightings of value which are not necessarily... At all, the ones we would give it. I'm always a bit baffled by people who suggest that religion is, is you know, anthropomorphic, that it's a way of trying to make the universe conform in a narrow little way to the stuff we care about. Because my practical experience of religion is that it is constantly asking you to, to decenter yourself, to pay attention to, to things beyond you and apart from you, and often things that, that don't square at all easily with your own comfortable sense of priorities. There is an otherness in there. That's part of why I find it persuasive.
0: And in the book you have you describe this really moving account of, I guess it would be a religious experience, and this sense of being completely seen, and this elusive meeting with the other and you acknowledge how insufficient language is in, in being able to capture that, but also how it's really quite moving to watch you try and grapple towards it, to towards the ungrappable. How far does metaphor play a
1: role in describing your faith? I don't think there is such a thing as faith without metaphor. Mostly, believers aren't in the business of Of trying to manufacture a continuous description of what's happening to them. Thank, thank heavens. Writing a book about faith pushes you, you know, for a start towards the unnatural act of of trying to come up with some halfway recognisable account you can transmit to other people of what things, of what things feel like. It's, It's inevitably artificial and synthetic and i was very conscious when writing that part of of my book most of all that i was betraying and flattening and substituting at every single step of the description there that i took something which which at the time or at the times because it's several different experiences rolled into one for maximum ruthless effect i took things that that at the time were made of I don't know what and turned them into an artful construction of balsa wood and sticky pack plastic because that's what language is like that's what rhetoric is is like but but metaphor specifically the metaphorical aspect of language has this useful property that every time you compare one thing to another thing every time you say well, this quality of thing X is actually rather like thing Y, you find a way to 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 pass a thread of meaning between them. You find a way to draw attention to some quality which it may not be possible easily to name just by looking at X or at Y, but which only comes very partially, very briefly, very sort of just one one glint or flicker in the grass and it's gone again it just comes into view for an instant in the comparison and i get a bit christian about it again i find it incredibly telling that christ's endless attempts to describe what the kingdom of heaven in is consists of a a huge pile of of statements about what it's like as if you couldn't actually name the thing, as if there were no nouns or verbs that would do the job at all, but you can somehow conjure tiny flickers of, like, of, of likeness from, from all this, you know, all these comparisons. Um, you know, it's like bread, it's like mustard seeds, it's like banging on somebody's door in the middle of the night. And there are you know, tens of them. It's like whatever all those likenesses have in common. So I think metaphor is one of the fundamental instruments we've got for coaxing language that doesn't express this thing very well to bring it into view at all. It's inadequate, it's misleading, it's hopelessly subjective, and it's also what you've got to work with.
0: So how far is Christian faith trying to reach for the impossible? And and if it's continually going to be a failure... Why bother? Why bother?
1: For two reasons. No, let's do the first part. Let's do the idiot reaching for the impossible. Oh yes, it is. Christianity distinguishes itself from most other religions and from the other two monotheisms, Judaism and Islam in particular, by having uh, an ethical program which is frankly impossible to to carry out. It's just hopelessly perfectionist. It's constantly suggesting that you should you should. Love your enemies, and offer your other cheek to be slapped, and and various things that just don't work very well and very viably in the real world. It is not ancient secrets of life of lifestyle wisdom or any of that shit. It's just it's just it's just an endless series of recommendations to try stuff that would get you into trouble and would probably lead to you being hurt one way one way or another. So yes, impossible. The reasons why it's worth doing, anyway are in the first place that by ceaselessly trying for the impossible no ceaselessly sounds much too much too macho by intermittently when you can summon the energy and the goodwill to try for the impossible, you actually discover that the area of the possible is bigger than you than you thought it was, that there are various bits of human solidarity and you know, small L non romantic love which are genuinely Attainable when you set out to do impossible things that people really do jump into rivers to save those that they're not related to. They really do devote their lives to looking after people who may not even know that somebody's there looking after them. There are areas of possible goodness which a programme of impossibility helps open up. You don't reach the impossibilities but you reach some other stuff. That's the first thing. The second thing about reaching for the impossible is that is that if you are a theist of the christian kind you you believe that the impossible reaches back that it isn't just you trundling along trying your best that something is being reached out to you something is being given you something is being extended towards you it takes me back to the beginning of this that this conversation that there are sources of strength and nourishment that we don't have to generate ourselves
0: speak about humans propensity to fuck things up as you describe it the good old sin Um.
1: Um, except well no the reason I I came up with that the HPT I had to work out how to pronounce it for the audiobook of the book and I came up with a sort of (laughs) sound the reason I came up with that was that I thought that the word sin had become so hopelessly misleading it's not that I wish to it's not that I'm embarrassed by the idea of sin or or wish to abolish it in favour of something n- newer and shinier and more down with the kids. It was that I thought it was very difficult to hear any actual content now in the word sin that didn't have to do with whipped cream and the consumption of slightly naughty things, but which were nevertheless fun and which only, only an old Puritan could possibly disapprove of. Which is kind of, if you, if you just built a map of, what sin meant from contemporary uses of it, you'd think it probably had something to do with cream cakes or red lingerie I wanted a blank artificial term which I haven't just spat on your shoe. I wanted a I wanted a, a blank artificial term in which I could load something I hoped a lot more like what traditionally sin has meant which is to do with human destructiveness to do with the way that there is genuinely a part of us bigger in some people than in other people but not missing in anyone which actually quite likes to to put a big boot through the precious and fragile and valuable things that are in our lives when christians talk about sin it if you want to understand what they're on about it helps to think about your reaction to rape and murder much more than to think about cream cakes. And I thought a nice, blank, artificial word would help to move the conversation, oddly, somewhere more traditional. It was a modern expedient, with swearing, designed to reveal the outlines of an old idea.
0: And renewing that idea is antithetical to a culture which strives for you know, happiness, shiny happiness.
1: I'm in favour of happiness. Can I just can yeah. I stipulate this? I, I am actually in favour of, of as much happiness as, as possible. Mm-hmm. I just observe that it isn't in fact continuous and no. that a culture which thinks that only happiness is worth reporting is going to be rather under-equipped for dealing with the other stuff which is an inevitable part of of human lives.
0: Yes. I think I, I think we can so easily sweep under the rug that there are... Difficult aspects of human living,
1: right? Mm. It's out of it's out of our control that there is that, that that we are we are in part like that. Each time we do it, it tends not to be out of our control unless we're completely off our heads on some substance or other. But that's usually also under our control. I've been if I'm going to get an anthology of times, I've been deeply pissed off recently. There's a there's that song by Dragon oh, Bone Man about being I'm only human. So they didn't put the blame on me. What a piece of illogical crap that is! Given that, given that, that being human means you are to blame sometimes. It's not like it's not like the fact that we're fallible is is an excuse for any particular piece of, of fallibility. It's just a description, mate. Now I really am ranting. Where were we? Sorry.
0: Well, I mean, the Christian ethic or faith is uh, really against the idea of self interestedness and self righteousness. Yes. And I think that ties into a sense of thinking that you're perfectible. Mm-hmm. Uh, any individual is perfectible. How, where does that stem from? In...
1: Oddly, I think it too probably stems from religion. Given that our culture is littered with the with the long term consequences of previous ages of faith, often half remembered or not remembered at all under their under their original names. So I think the sense that 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 we're perfectible probably actually remotely comes from the impossibilist ethics of, of Christianity the idea that, that that we ought to try for for moral perfection the bit that's been been forgotten is that is that it never works and that there are costs to trying many of the very worst things humans do happen as part of the project of of becoming perfect that there is a kind of Dreadful, hydraulic consequence to denying the existence of your own destructiveness. It comes back with extra pressure that that self-righteous cruelties greatly, greatly outweigh in force and terror the kinds of accidental individual cru- cruelties with 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 no program, that that trying to build paradise on earth is guaranteed to to force. Your fellow humans and possibly you through through the Mincer. I think I think what what we see in our culture now is not the terrible costs of utopian perfectionism, but a kind of hopeful, always disappointed, always baffled attempt at at individual self-improvement. One of the things that seems morally self-evident to us now is that we, we belong to ourselves and that it's it's up to us to, to make the most of ourselves, both of which are, of course, true, so far as that goes. But what it can suggest is a kind of atomized picture of the world, in, of, of wholly separate selves, each of which can be whatever we say it is, that, that, that we are little individual gods who ought to be able to command ourselves to be what we what we wish to be which makes our endless failures small and large to be that morally inexplicable and 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 immensely anxiety inducing i think i think we're a very anxious culture in proportion to our to our perfectionism my experience is that it is immense you know it is an immense human relief just to be in the wrong sometimes
0: what role does love of the other play, and what does the other mean?
1: Well, all love that that's worthy of the name is love of the other in some ways, isn't it? I mean it, it always involves reaching out from the self and finding something else to, to, to discover something else to to kind of touch and admire, to feel the difference of.
0: There's a great Iris Murdoch quote that love is. The realization that there's someone who exists beyond yourself.
1: Yeah, it is. It's the it's the it's the recognition of other people as such, and with it the with it the sense that they that they must always be ends in themselves. They can't be the means to something else. Most of the most potent kinds of evil come from treating other people as means rather than rather than as ends. So there is something loving and radically unsentimental because kind of attentive and not self-pleasing in in attention and just noticing what's not you from the intricacy of the of of the natural of the natural world through to the the always partly hidden but always partly discoverable nature of, of other people christianity insists that love should be extended to people you don't even like which is again insanely ambitious. But brings with it a reminder that that the otherness to be cherished is not just the kind that pleases us. And as part of the picture, as as part of the deal, it calls attention to there being an other in the shape of God who purportedly thinks that all of us are worth paying attention to. An other who cannot be repelled by the nature of our particular selves, no matter what they're like or what they've done? Where do fear
0: and anger come into play with that struggle of loving someone who you despise?
1: Well, you know, we are we are we are animals competing for finite for finite goods and finite resources. There is the very understandable and often extremely well founded fear that that the the other person will respond to your overture of love and attention by going, I'll have your wallet. Um or, you know, I'll I'll have your country. It's <laughs> a so, nice suit and land, I think I'll have that. That's why there's game theory telling us all the things that can 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 go wrong when different parties are deciding independently whether to trust each other or not. But there's also something fearful about attempting trust anyway when you don't know how things are going to be reciprocated, that there is a form of of vulnerability and self-exposure, irrespective of whether the other person turns around and gives you a great big hug or or alternatively annexes annexes your country. Just in in the reaching out, it's genuinely scary stuff. And self-protectiveness is necessary to our biological life. If Christianity keeps telling us not to do it so much or not to do it at all, that's the reason that's going to fail is probably that it's it's incompatible with with our biological life,
0: incompatible with human systems of justice, yes, and truth and goodness, which... and
1: proportionality, and a sense a sense that that. That the world will will run much more reliably if we can justly estimate what people deserve, and that we can tell the difference between a, a parking fine and an act of an act of mass murder. Justice is an enormously complicated human achievement, and and the societies that haven't got it reliably talk about it a lot. That's why that's why the Old Testament and particularly the Psalms goes on and on and on about justice because it is it is immensely desirable to have some impartial system that can be relied on to sort out what what happened and what people deserve as a as a result and i don't want less than justice christians don't want less than justice the idea is that is that we should have this thing that's necessary to us and immensely desirable and that then there are things we need as well after that that beyond justice there is there is mercy mercy instead of justice It's very alarming.
0: Something which is so wonderfully captured in the phrase "mounting to something kinder than fairness. Yeah. Something kinder than fairness. A life larger than law.
1: Yes. I think that was my phrase, wasn't it? It was, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm quoting quoting you. (laughs) Yes. That's, that's, That's the vision, and only attainable in glimpses and flashes, but still nevertheless worth pursuing at the same time as as you pursue as you pursue justice. Kinder than law doesn't mean law isn't valuable. Kinder than law means law plus. Okay, so
0: let's take a brief tangent to speak about the historical record of the church. Oh, <laughs> must, we, we must. We must. and yeah, <laughs> um, let's let's address it, because I think that's one of the uh, the values and merits of your book is how direct you are in addressing yeah, history. Hmm. So Yes, um many elephants in the room, <laughs> the oppression of women and sexual minorities, yep. the, the Christian principle of unlimited love, loving the other doesn't seem to be operationalized there. Mm-hmm. So, um we're at this juncture of seeing all these uh, the Christian principles exercised or under the guise of Christianity in a way which problematizes its status as something which 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 I think it prevents some people
1: from entering Hmm. i'm not surprised it does um no i think there are the particular elephant that that is filling the christian room enormously just at the minute is to do with 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 sexuality and i think in some ways people jump to a, a slightly a slightly faulty conclusion about how the elephant got in there it's not that christians are responsible for the homophobia that we are its original source and that's why the elephant is still in our room. It's that the world was full of that particular elephant and that the the Christian churches move a lot more slowly when it comes to cultural change. So if you want to find surviving examples of the homophobia elephant, then come on down because we've got more of one than some of the people on the outside. And I could tell a complicating story to do with, for example, my church, the Church of England, and the role it played in getting homosexuality legalised in the 1960s. The votes of bishops in the House of Lords were quite instrumental in that but still it's not something we get to be to be proud of what i would say is that the standards by which we judge our our elephants of injustice are themselves provided by the religion that from the very beginning the christian church has been an organization of people and therefore vulnerable to to all of the things that go wrong when people get together in groups and therefore have opportunities for spite and bullying and injustice and exploitation and all of those things but that the organization has never only been that that through all the centuries when slavery was a completely accepted part of the of the world, there was already there inside Christianity the, the values which were eventually going to produce the moral critique of slavery that, that now strikes us as, as, as self-evident. That the undoubted misogyny of the Christian tradition has partly had something done about it because... Um, of a bunch of doughty women's rights activists and suffragists and feminists in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, who were, to an extraordinary degree, often Christians, because what was motivating them was the the vision of the equality of all human souls, which has also been there inside Christianity during all the centuries when men in frocks were rabbiting on about the sin of Eve and. Suggesting that that women represented the flesh and and um, were uniquely responsible for, for for sexual sin and all of that crap. There is a vision of human equality in Christianity, which is which waits for its historical moment. We're not doing very well at meeting this particular historical moment just right now. I'm not proud of where my church is standing. But if you'd like to wait around for a few more decades, then I feel confident that we will eventually reach the late twentieth century. Then, of course, you know we'll some other bloody elephant will need will need addressing. But and I'm not saying it's okay because we mean well because we don't entirely mean well because we're, we're we're people. But the reason why those of us who mind the elephant stick with it is is that the church also and at the same time and throughout, I think. Has embodied the hope of justice and mercy. And once you have a a principle like that let loose, then it goes on working. It goes on revealing new injustices and new situations, which something had better be bloody done about.
0: Do you think that? In fact, I'm going to quote you. Go on. Something is wonderful. Without the static of privilege fuzzing the channel, we can pick out again more clearly the countercultural cool Christianity makes to admit your lack of cool, your incompleteness, your inability to ever be one of the self-possessed creatures in the catalogues or the loveless calculator that is Homo economicus, and to find hope instead—a hope that counts upon is c- kindly raised upon the mess you actually are. And caveat is that you. You you haven't always been Christian. No, you entered in your thirties. Yeah, right. That's right. Can you explain that transition and how? How has that moment from then to now? Where has it taken you?
1: No, I was an atheist for twenty odd years, um, and have no trouble at all in understanding how normal people find that, or indeed in admiring various ways in which that is a, a kind of trenchant and. And strong-minded position. I think it's. I think it's not a whole picture of the world, but I don't think it's contemptible or ridiculous at all. And to some extent, coming into faith as as an adult in my thirties probably sensitised me to 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 some extent how strange it is that I, I I was looking around me with an anthropological curiosity with my kind of. My new brothers and sisters. Switch metaphor. And now I'm in this room with an elephant in it. Um, Mm -hmm. um, I'm on a journey with an elephant in a room. um, And bread and wine have got something to do with it. It's a a metaphorical element. (laughs) Uh, Elephant. Ah! Okay. Whatever it is that I signed up to appears to mean, and I often fail at this, appears to mean a willingness to go on being surprised to accept the bumpiness of the ground under my feet and the fact that I am going to go on being morally disconcerted by what I noticed next about myself and other people it's it's surprising and uncomfortable sometimes and nourishing in a way that I haven't found anything else to be.
0: Francis, it's been such an honour speaking with you. Thank you so much.